Hey, y'all. You ever heard of an amazing young woman by the name of Zinzi Smith? Well, I have. And her and I had just an amazing conversation on Beyonce's internet. I will have you know that 20-year-old Zinzi Smith has her own black woman-owned business for an entire year now teaching spin classes. And let me tell you, she's enthusiastic. She wants the world to know that she's ready to help you shed them pounds from Thanksgiving and Christmas and help you keep up with that New Year's resolution that all of us middle-aged people like to make while we're still making them. So I, for one, am going to try and take one of her classes, just $15 for an online class with Zinzi Smith. She also teaches in person in studios in Brooklyn and in Queens and NYC. And all around, I got to tell you, I am just in awe of her. So you can reach out to her on Spin With Zin. That's Spin With Z-I-N on TikTok and on Instagram. And let her know that you heard it here on Black Fluid Poets Podcast. And you're trying to shed them pounds and keep up that New Year's resolution. You feel me? So give her a shout out. Let me know how it went. Hey, y'all. It's your fam, Black Fluid Poet, coming to you live from my humble abode of books that is, by the way, falling the fuck apart during this pandemic paradise. Whew. I guess the quarantine is over, so I ain't even gonna bother with the quarantine ain't cute. But uh, can we... Uh, mm, mm, mm. I'm telling you, there's so many things going on right now that I, I just don't know what to address first. However... This, um, I made a couple of TikTok videos about my dad and, um, you know, it just, it just spoke to my spirit. And and this is something that I, I just, I want to address this because a lot of people from my generation, generation X, we, we had it hard with black fathers, you know? Um, and there was this long-standing joke about, you know, black dads not being there. And that's just not the case. This first, shut the fuck up with that shit. Black men are there for their children just as much, if not more, than any other race. So we're going to quiet that. Anybody could have seats who thinks otherwise. Mm. But um, I'm going to talk about my dad a little bit today. And... You know, sometimes by talking about my own personal life, it it affects other people's. Now, let me first say that when I was in a relationship with my kids' mothers, right, I was a good dad. I didn't know how to emotionally navigate being there for my children while simultaneously having resentments with their moms. Um, somewhere it was just ingrained to me that when the when they split up, the dad just leaves. And on top of that, there was my drinking and, and drug use. And I, to put it bluntly, when the relationship ended, I became a horrible father. Um, and and that's the bottom line. That's I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. That's that's the bottom line. I was a horrible father once the relationship ended. Um, in my head, it's all or nothing, and I'm, that's very toxic. It's a very toxic way to live, all or nothing. 
So if we're going to end the relationship, I'm not going to be there. No, don't hit me up for money. Like, ask your new man for money. Like, that, that's how resentful I was. My hate for their mothers was stronger than my love for them. Sad but true. And I don't think that was the case with my father. I just think my father didn't have the tools to be a father. He just didn't have them, you know? Um, my mom told me that, um, my mom told me that my dad truly, truly loved me. I have his name. I'm the only one of his kids that, that has his name. I'm a junior. And he insisted on me taking his name. Now, there is, I, I don't know how to explain it. I really believe that there was something colorist about it. You know, I'm the lightest of all his children. Um, I think I'm the only one that, the only one of his kids that that has uh, a white mother. Um, and somewhere in the back of my head, I really feel like special attention was paid to me because I was so fair, right? Um, because I was white appearing. But... That's a, that's a story for another day. But, you know, um, my mom told me stories about when I was little, I was really sick. I had a lot of asthma. I was born asthmatic. And um, my mom told me the story about um, me getting sick as a baby. And if y'all ever lived in, in a big city, Chicago, New York City, L.A., you know an ambulance could be a while, right? Um now you take that to the seventies and then you take it to the projects that look flavor Flav had this old song. Nine one one is a joke in your town. Um, you'll die waiting for the ambulance. So my mom tells me the story about my dad putting me in a stroller and running almost 30 blocks to get me to the hospital. And it's hard to imagine because my dad was just never there. You know, he just never made himself available. So I can't help but like, it, it, it was hard to register. She said, John, your father couldn't put you down. He just couldn't put you down. He, he just, you were the gleam in his eye. And, and those are the kind of things she'd say. And I, and I used to get upset because I'm like, well, then where the fuck is he? It took me, almost 20 years before someone sat me down and said, you know, your parents love you the best they can. Not to their fullest potential, not the way you should be loved, but with what they knew at the time and with what they had spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, that's all they could do. That's all they had. That was the best they could do. And it's over now. So what are you going to do? And I think I was, I was about 21, 22, um, when I finally was able to forgive my parents, both of them. And I accepted that that was the best they could do. And it's over now. You know, the rest of this is up to me. And it doesn't excuse them. It's not, it's not, you know, um, 
I'm not dismissing the toxicity. I'm not dismissing the neglect and the hurt and the grief and the, and the abuse and the beatings and all kinds of stuff that I got from both my parents. It doesn't excuse any of it. It doesn't dismiss any of it. It's just some radical acceptance. That was it. That was the best. My parents both told me they loved me every time they saw me. And I believe that they believed that. That they gave everything that they had. And that was love for them. And we're talking about a generation that shunned therapy, that believed in, in uh, you know, the normativity of, of heterosexual and, and Christian and, you know, by the book, you know, by the book, completely colonized minds, both my parents. Um. But the thing about a black man in the 70s, a lot of people don't understand, is that you're talking about a, um, a time when masculinity still ruled and the man ran the household and, you know, he was the boss and his paycheck supported everybody. Um, and for black men who were marginalized in the workforce, who were who were held down from promotions who were, you know, never brought up from the mail room, um, had to, you know, suffice it with cleaning the floors and, and, you know, being the assistant and being the token. And my, my dad couldn't work a legitimate job and support his family. My mother told me that my dad didn't even know his social security number, that he had never collected a paycheck. My dad has been a hustler since he was a child. He graduated high school early, graduated high school at 16, and that was it, man. He just, he ran numbers and pimped and dealt drugs and was a hustler, you know. Um, at one point, he became a, a nightclub singer, and my mom said that's how she met him. Um, he was singing Stand By Me and she was like, oh, John. <laughs> this is how my mother used to talk about my father. Oh, John, and he was just sexy. And I was like, mom. She was like, I I'm just, I can't help. He was sexy. He was smooth and charming and he was a flashy dresser and oh, I couldn't take my eyes off him. Your father had every woman in the room melting at his feet. And it, it was it was like my mom took what she could get from him. She 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 emphasized the places where he did have control. My mother never talked about his hustling. She never talked about the money he made or, or lost. He, she never talked about the drug dealing or the pimping. She never ever mentioned that to me. I knew from the rest of the family what was really going on. But my mother said, John, you know, some days your father would go out, come back two hours later with $1,000. And then sometimes it would be two months before he brought home any more money. So I, I never knew what to do. And and I, I we used to get into fights because I told him I needed consistent money coming in the house. We had kids. And he was like, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And she was like, motherfucker, get a real job. And he could have, he could have gotten, 
you know, a job of, of legitimacy and, and, you know, using his social security number, blah, 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 paying his taxes. Um, but my dad just, my dad couldn't accept not being in control of his own destiny. And, and that was the bottom line. My dad didn't want anybody controlling his day, telling him when to show up, when to go to bed. You know what I mean? When to take a break. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And a lot of the reason why my dad couldn't stay in any relationship is that same thing. He just, he just couldn't, he, he couldn't give up control of, of his life. He couldn't compromise it. He, you know, it was, he, he couldn't leave the streets and my mom just got frustrated, you know, and, uh, it was really hard for a lot of fathers back then, you know, and, you know, she would curse him out when he didn't have money and they would get into these fights and not fist fights, but, you know, arguments. And, um, I, I grew up listening to my, when my dad left, I was about three. And let me tell you, that was a gut-wrenching night from what little I can remember of it. It must have been about, I don't know, three, two, three in the morning. And it was the middle of the night sometime. And I hear this, this arguing. And I get out of bed and I'm, I'm young, man. I'm, I'm young. I'm like three years old. And, uh, oof. I remember coming out of my room and my sister and brother were in the hallway and this is a two bedroom apartment in the lower east side of Manhattan, by the way. Um, and so my brother Frankie and my sister Lori are in the hallway and they just got their heads down and, and the lights are out in the hallway and there's just a little light in the living room and my mother's sitting at the dinner table and, uh, all I can see is her back and, and the cigarette smoke, you know, um, and I hear my dad at the door going, come on, open this door. Come on, let, we got to talk about this. You can't just lock me out of my house. Come on, you know. And I said, that's dad. And she, and he goes, John, come on over here and unlock this door. And my mother said, John, don't touch that door. And there it was. I was literally in a hallway with a door between my father and me and my mother with her back to me. And God, if this wasn't a metaphor for the rest of my fucking life. And I remember wanting to walk to the door and my mother said, John, I told you don't touch that goddamn door. And my father's like, you know, come open this door, John. Don't listen to her. Just come open this door. And I remember my sister, Lori, grabbing me by the hand and kind of pulling me somewhat gently in, into my bedroom and uh, I, I screamed and cried and, you know, kept trying to pull away. And she just kept pulling me into the bedroom. And she picked me up and she held me and I cried. And I probably fell back to sleep crying on her shoulder. And I didn't see my father again for a couple of years. It would be years before I see my father again. And my mother had met another man who, who was uh, my stepfather. And he was, he loved me. He was just like, he loved me. But... Him and my mom eventually broke up and uh, I had somewhere in my head 
came to the conclusion that men are temporary. And in any relationship I was in, when the relationship ended, I just, you know, in my later years, it was different. But when I was younger, I just didn't even flinch. It was like, okay, you know, the relationship's over. I'll find a new one. She'll find a new one, whatever. Um, But I never thought like relationships were forever, like forever, ever, until I was like way older. I was like, you know, 30 by the time I was like, no, I want to be with somebody forever, you know? <laughs> and um, I I don't know what that looks like, y'all. I don't know what forever with a person looks like, you know? Um, like, how do you accept everything about a person and, and how they change over the years and adjust, you know? Um, what do you do with their mistakes and their flaws and the times they hurt you? And, you know, um, I was, I was a waiter at this, this, uh, one restaurant and there one night I had to serve a a private party and it was a couple that were celebrating, get this, their 60th wedding anniversary, 60 fucking years with the same person. Holy shit. Right. And all their kids, they had a lot of kids. And all their kids who are, you know, obviously grown, they're all like, you know, fucking 40 and 50 years old. Um, They came in early and they had these giant posters. I mean, these tapestries, man. They were like five feet by seven feet. They were humongous. And they had them all over the dining hall, uh, the dining room of this restaurant. And they they were photos of their parents when they were young, when they were in like their teens and their, their, their 20s and, and it was, it was, you know, and throughout the years and the times with the kids and they had them all up black and white photos. They had them, these big tapestries all over the dining room and the couple comes in and let me tell you, this guy is debonair. He is smooth. You know what I mean? Like S-M-O-O-V-V-V-V-V-E. Smooth and charming and, and a snazzy dresser and you know, had a little, had had this cool little cane with gold tip on it, you know, and, um, you know, she, she comes in as well and, and she is just full of joy, you know, she's laughing so loud and they're, they're like 70, 80 years old and, and they're just so full of life and they were holding hands coming in and they were kissing all during dinner and I don't think it was an act just for the night. I really believe that these two people are in love 60 years after getting married. Like, it was just amazing. And I had to know because I'm, I'm that kind of person. I walked up to them and I said, um, you know, this is, and, and they drank, y'all. Who did they drink? They had a couple of cocktails. Then we breaking out the wine. Then they had some aperitifs. I was like, get ahead, you know. Um, the liver's still working at 80. My God. Um, but I had to ask, I was like, look, um, I gotta know. What's, is there a secret to to being together this long. And she said, breathe in, breathe out, don't die, and don't leave. That's it. You just don't leave. No matter what, you don't go. She said, what, you don't think he stepped out? And he's, you know, he's sitting there and he's like, oh God, here we go, you know. She's like, sure, he stepped out. But he didn't do it again. And, and, uh, they were hilarious, these two. So they, they, during dinner, they asked to give a speech, right? They each, they each said some words. 
And he stood up and he said, I've come to the conclusion after being with this lovely young woman all these years that if I would have killed her when I first thought of it, I would be out of prison by now. And she took her napkin and slapped him with it, you know, and the whole room broke out laughing. And he sits down and she goes, you know, we had separate beds for a while because, you know, he, his feet are too cold and he snores too loud. And da, da, da. She said, but now I think from this point on, separate houses are what it's going to have to be. And everybody cracked up laughing again. And when I looked at them, I imagined them as my parents. And this this elderly couple was white. And I don't, in my head, I just don't care what problems they ever had. It wasn't the same as my white mother and black father trying to navigate a society that did not, absolutely not want them together. And my dad gave in. Like, society was just too hard. It was just too much. It was just too much, you know. My my mom used to have to, like, go get the apartment. And then, you know, oh, yeah, my husband and kids will be moving the stuff in. You know, and then here comes this black guy and all these mixed children, you know. And my mom already signed the lease. It's too fucking late. You know what I mean? And, like... We navigated tickets to carnivals that way and, and you know, anything, any anywhere we went, movies and anything. She, my mom had to go buy the tickets first so we could all get in, you know. Um, and, and there's this one time, I know this is when it, it must have broken. It must have broke my dad, you know. Um, I was sick. I was in the hospital. And I think I was like five or six, right? Like one of the, is when I, my, I started seeing my dad a, a little bit more often, not, not a lot, but like once a month, maybe, you know? Um, and my dad came in to see me and he sat on, on my bed and, you know, we were just talking and laughing and this nurse came by and she was like, can I, can I help you, sir? And he's like, no, I'm just sitting here. And, uh, she's like, well, who are you? And he goes, this is my son. And she goes, could, could I see some ID? And he was like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, my dad started going off and uh, she got security and, and security got the police and the police showed up and my mom showed up and there was all this yelling in the hallway. And I didn't understand what was happening. My mom came in and my dad left. It was all worked out. He didn't get arrested. But... um. I said, why did dad leave? And and I don't remember what my mom's response was. But as a kid, I it wasn't like I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around the police made him leave or security or the nurse didn't believe he was my dad because he was black. You know, I was just too young to take all of that in. My mom said, you know, he just had to go, honey. He'll, you know, you'll see him again. And there were times when I was angry with my parents about shit they had no control over. I was angry with my dad about a society that wouldn't allow him to be a father to me. You know? A society that wouldn't allow him to be a legitimate man who could bring home a big enough paycheck to support his family unless he was mopping school hallways, you know, or or picking up the garbage in a hospital or, you know, whatever, just being a sales clerk somewhere, you know? Um, and I was, I was so mad because my, my dad was fucking intelligent. He was swift. He was, 
you know, quick on his feet with the response. He, you know, he was, he was smooth, man. He was a fast talker. And like, I think about how great of a, you know, how, 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 how great of a, a financier he would have been, you know, being able to like, you know, sell stock and, and, you know, work on wall street. And I think about how, you know, he could have negotiated deals for his clients in a courtroom and, you know, could have defended people and, and, or, or the speeches he could give as a politician, you know, he was smooth, man. He was like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton type smooth, you know, convincing. And even when he was broke, you swore he had money because he never let you know he was broke. It took, I, it had been years be, since I had seen my father. And um, I had a cousin, uh, Junior, who uh, died of AIDS. And um, it was sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I'm at this funeral in Harlem. And my dad shows up. And he's homeless. And he shows up at the funeral parlor with his shopping cart. And he pushes the shopping cart in. Now, this is a guy who was a nightclub singer, pimp, numbers runner, drug dealer, always had money, always had the outfits. I mean, always had a wad of cash in his pocket. Like, he was on top of the world, man. And there he was with a shopping cart. And he wheeled the shopping cart into this little closet-type room. And uh, he sat down in the back row by himself. It was like a couple of seats empty on either side of him. And I got up and I sat next to him. And he looked at me like, you know, who's this dude sitting next to me? And he didn't recognize me. And I said, hey, dad. And he just, uh, uh, and then he started to laugh. And that was my dad's response to everything, to stress, to bad news, to sad news. He just, he'd laugh, you know, hey, that's, that's, that's life, you know. Life is crazy, baby. That's what he used to always say. Crazy, baby. Life is crazy, baby. And he laughed. And uh, he said, how you doing? And I said, good. I said, it's good to see you. And this is after I've come to a conclusion that my parents did the best they could. And my dad, I know he was waiting for me to just like glare or, you know, have a fucked up tone. But I was just like, it's good to see you. And I saw him squirm. And I didn't understand it then. Because I was like, yo, it really is just good to see you. But now I, rem I imagine being homeless with my shopping cart. And my son, who I hadn't seen in years, shows up and says, it's good to see you. And uh, as the funeral was ending, you know, I said, dad, I love you. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, no, no, dad, seriously, I love you. And I'm glad I got to see you tonight. And he's like, all right, all right. Yeah, I love you too. And um, he was ashamed. Like I could see it in his face, the, the shame. And that was the last time I saw my father. Um, I had gotten some calls from family and they told me that, you know, hey, your dad's in the hospital with pneumonia. Um, you know, like you might want to go see him. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm all the way in Jersey. Like I'm, I'm in South Jersey. I'm not going all the way to New York City just to see him because he's got pneumonia. You know, it's just pneumonia. It's no big deal. And some time had passed, about nine months, and I called, and I was talking to family, and they were like, um, you know, your dad died, right? And I said, when? 
And he said, uh, you know, when he was in the hospital with pneumonia, I told you to go see him. And I said, you know, to my aunt Dolores, I was like, what do you, he had pneumonia. Who dies of fucking pneumonia? And she said, well, I mean, that's what he died of. And then uh, later on, I had spoken to my mother. And my mother said, John, you, your dad had the virus. I knew that back when you were about 13. Um, you know, and I said, the virus? I said, but dad, dad didn't shoot heroin, did he? And she was like, no. Um, I don't know how else to put this, but, you know, your dad was bisexual. And the night that I wouldn't let him in the house was when I caught him with another man. I put him out. All of y'all will asleep. And, uh, what? You know, I was like, what? And to this day, it was hard for me to wrap my head around it there's an inner homophobia that I have that made me angry that my dad was with men. Um, I think most of it is because, you know, he broke the relationship with my mother and that's why I didn't have him in my life. But again, we're talking about a society that wasn't going to let him be who he was. And there are days when I think my dad vanished to relieve some of the stress. He thought he was doing the right thing because all his other kids got to see him. And I think my dad ghosted us because it was tough growing up with mixed parents. Um, I think both my parents were stressed and fucking drained from it. You know what I mean? Um, it was it was a different time, man. It was just a different... I, I see today, you know, I see, uh, you know, white and black together in relationships and having children. I'm, I, I'm afraid sometimes because most of the white people in these relationships, most of them, are not entrenched in black culture at first you know what i mean there my, my mom grew up in harlem you know from the time she was 13 until she met my dad sometime in you know her 30s so like my mom lived in black culture you know in, in a black society only black friends my you know my mom was sexually assaulted by a white dude so she she didn't fuck with white people you know her parents you know put her out when she was pregnant from from the sexual assault um and and then her parents absolutely disowned her whole family disowned her when she got with my dad. Well, actually before my dad, my my siblings' father. Um, and when she was broke, some of her family told her, "Well, you know, you married a nigger, so you know what do you want? You know what'd you expect?" Um, and it was really dismissive and. It just wasn't fair. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't fair. And it, when I was a teenager, and I remember just being so pissed off that I didn't see my father, and I said some slick shit, and I remember my mom slapped me. And my mom said, you know, you, you have no idea what that man has been through in his life. And I, I'm like, mom, you've been talking shit about him for years. Like, how are you going to get me? You know, she was like, 
John, and, and that's when that whole, you know, John, your father loved you. When he was in your life, he loved you. He gave you his name because you were just, you were, the, you were the only light in his dark eye. You know what I mean? You were only light in his dark life. And, and it, was, it, it used to hurt because I was like, why didn't he show me? And you know what? I had come to the conclusion that that was what he believed was a loving gesture, was letting me grow up with a white woman and live this white life. You know, my mom moved me out to the suburbs and I went to all these good schools. And my dad came to visit a couple of times. And every time my dad came to visit, there was drama, you know, um, my dad came once and my mom had gone to pick me up somewhere. And, um, when we got back to my house, I was living in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and we are talking who white Ridgewood, New Jersey. And, um, when we got back to the house, there was a police car there and my landlord and my dad are yelling. And I'm like, what, you know, my mom's like, what's going on? And she's like, I don't know, this black guy just showed up at your door. So I called the police. And that was like 1981. So, you know, a lot of things still haven't changed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, there was no video. It, it wasn't this common thing that we were all talking about. So it was like, why would you call the cops? Like, he just knocked on the fucking door, you know? Um and looking back, like the anxiety that that would cause. Every time my dad tried to be in my life, police got involved, man. You know, like it was like society was trying to say it was wrong for me to have a father. I didn't know that it had anything to do with race. I just knew that everybody around us didn't want me and my dad together. And somewhere in the back of my head, this 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 conclusion settled like like water in, into soil. You know, it just settled in that like dads don't stay. Dads are not supposed to stay. And I think I carried that through a lot of my life. That dads are temporary. You know, you fall in love with a guy, you know, whatever, you get you get hooked up or you know, he moves in or whatever, and then like he helps you make a baby and then, you know. Not too long after that, he leaves because that's how it works, you know. Um, and I just, I didn't know how to love my children. I knew how to perform fatherhood. I knew how to perform fatherhood. I knew I had to bring home money. I knew I had to like help get the kids to bed. I knew there had to be like food in the fridge and there had to be good meals cooked you know, and I knew everybody had to be clean and the clothes had to be clean and they had to be at school at this time. And I knew the performance of fatherhood. I didn't know how to love my children though. I didn't know that just sitting on the, on the bench in the park when my kids were like, dad, look, that was, that was a big part of fatherhood. And in my head, I'm like, if I'm not in the house and paying the bills and being there 24 hours a day for my kids and I don't want it. And I hope, I hope that 
I hope that my, my kids don't end up with these same conclusions because of the mistakes I've made. You know, I've, I've had some conversations with my son and, you know, my, my son is like, you know, the past is the past. You know, I forgive you for whatever. And like, you know, I love you, dad. And the first time my, my son said, I love you, you know, he was like, I hadn't seen him in years. And he was, he was 20, 22, I think, when the first time he messaged me on Facebook. And he was just like, I just, you know, we talked, we talked about college and, you know, how he's doing. And we've had some really great, great conversations. And I haven't talked to him in a while, actually. So I think after this, I'll probably message him. But um, I, I just can't imagine being queer and having to hold that in because, you know, being a street hustler, you you had to be, you know, intimidating. You had to be slick. Everybody had to know that you don't put up with no shit. And if they ever would have found out he was queer, he'd have lost all the respect of the street. He'd have lost all his street cred. And God, it, it just, it's sinister. It's just sinister, you know, what society did to my parents. It's sinister. And these new generations, I love it, man. I love that, like, there are therapists on TikTok with 100,000 followers. You feel me? And and sexual assault is being talked about thoroughly. And, you know, being queer is, is, is becoming more and more embraced by more and more of society. We're not there. We are not there. But, um... And also inside, you know, we're talking about, you know, stop calling the cops, man. Stop fucking calling the cops just because you see a black person. Just stop, you know. And these are things that I wish we were addressing in the 70s. I, I just, all of us being able to come together in social media and talk about and unpack these issues through sarcasm or jokes or songs or, you know, just live discussions. They're, they're essential. They're essential. You know, to people of my generation, if you're still holding on to resentments with your parents, whatever they did, I get it. And I'm not going to tell you to forgive them. And, and you know, there are people like, eh, cut them out of your life. And there's like, oh, stay with them. You only get one set. You only get one mom. You only get one dad, blah, blah, blah. And there's people like, nah, they're toxic, man. You, you got to take care of you, blah, blah, blah. You have to do what's right for your spirit, you know, um, there was a time when I had cut my mother off and then in my spirit, there was a time in my spirit that was like, you know, you need to get back to your mom. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I did, you know. My dad, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know. And and I didn't know what I didn't know, if, if that makes any sense, you know. Um, I'm just sad that he never got to be his intelligent, suave, you know, smooth-talking self in, in a world of legitimacy and respect that, that acknowledged his humanity, no matter his sexuality, no matter his gender expression, no matter what gender he felt. You know, I'll, I'll never know those things, you know. It's... It's just, um, I hope we're, we're getting someplace closer. I, I think that's just what it is. I just hope we're getting someplace closer. And um, 
just remember each other's humanity. Remember your parents' humanity. For the people of my generation, your parents were human beings without therapy, with no instruction manual, just you know, doing whatever they could to make sure there was money to pay the bills to keep you alive. And this whole thing about how to nourish your children and how to, you know, support them through their dreams. Nobody was talking about that shit back then. It was like, you know, make sure your kids don't die. <laughs> make sure they were clean. Make sure they were fed. And made sure that they fucking respected the rules. Don't give us no problems at school. Don't make me have to come up there to get your ass. You shut the fuck up in church and show some respect. Keep your clip on tie straight, you know, um... When we're at these people's houses, you know, don't be running around their house. Sit here. We're going to have dinner and you better be on your, you best be on your best behavior. You know, um, that was our job as kids to avoid getting our asses kicked. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was a parent's job to make sure they whooped our ass if we stepped out of line. And it was, it was just a different, a, a different set of expectations and rules. And a lot of the ways my parents raised me were wrong, but they did prepare me for a future with them. I was very self-reliant and it was a good thing because my parents were very neglectful. You know, they, they were, they abandoned me often. Um, but they loved me the best they could. That's it. And if I'm going to move forward in my life, with less emotional pain and, and being able to let go of some of that trauma, I'm going to have to practice that radical acceptance of it's over. It's over. I can talk about what happened and I can heal by knowing the, the better ways to be with, with my kids now or, you know, in, in my relationships in the future. But I can't stay there. I can't stay there. And sometimes for me, forgiving my parents enabled me to move on with my life. I was able to let go. And, you know, that was it. That was the best they could do. That's all they fucking had. And I'm alive. And, you know, you know it, but did I die though? You know what I mean? Like I, I have to look at my parents fucked me up and they yelled and they said horrible things to me and they beat me. And But you know, did I die though? No, I didn't die. So like I'm here now. Um, and, and that's just how it is. And to people out there who still have young children, just hug them, man. Just hug them. Even if they can't stand it. Even if, mom, dad, get off. Just hug them. Make sure you tell them you love them. You know, tell them, I don't give a shit what you do. I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to love you. Even though I'm mad at you right now, I'm always, I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to love you. Always. Y'all, it's been real. Um, I hope this sheds some light for you on something in your life. Um, I'm actually learning a little bit about myself right now as we speak. So um, with that, remember to love yourself. And if you fall short, also remember you can start your day over at any time. Black Fluid Poet. Deuces. Hey, y'all. So check it, check it, check it, check it out. I just came across a new clothing line that is amazing. It is Jupiter's Art. This is 
a clothing line for non-binary people, right? So the clothes are genderless and uh, they are also sustainable. Um, There's carbon offset and they don't add anything negative to the environment. And they're also um, an ethical company with fair pay for their employees and they welcome uh, anyone in the spectrum of LGBT and race. It is owned by people of color and they deserve your attention. You can find Jupiter's Art on Instagram, on TikTok, and you can search for them on Google and find the website. It is amazing. Check it, check it, check it out. Wait till you see this jacket. Oh my God. This, it, it is amazing. Y'all, you got to peep it. Jupiter's Art. Check it. Hey, y'all. It's your fam, Black Fluid Poet, a.k.a. John S. Blake, coming to you live from my humble abode of books. And I'm going to uh, just leave it there. Um, I got a lot going on, and, and I need to kind of ramble about it a little, if, if you don't mind. Um, I am going to be 52 at the end of April. Right, April 29th, I'll be 52. Taurus in the building. What? What? So I'm I'm at a place where I'm really just reflecting on my entire life, which is, you know, that's a lot, especially with everything that I've been through. Um, all these different experiences and travel and people. Um, and I'm not happy. I don't feel proud of my life when I when I reflect over the whole experience of being me and living in the United States on this planet, so forth, so on. I I'm not happy. Um I when I was younger I saw things going way different than where I am now. Um I didn't think I'd be single. I didn't think that I would be, you know, childless, to, to, so to speak. Um, I didn't think I'd be in an empty house. I didn't think I'd be alone. And I'm really struggling with um, acceptance, you know. I'm, I'm struggling with accepting that this is the life I have. This is it. And um, I don't feel hopeful about the future. I don't feel like, you know, people are like, well, you know, you could always start over. You could start now. And, and I feel like at almost 52, I don't, it could be self-pity, um, but I just don't feel like there's much time left to do anything. Um, I'm really beating myself up over every single bad choice I ever made. And, and side note, can I just share with y'all one thing that annoys the fuck out of me is when, you know, I, if you ever have the urge to talk about a mistake you've made and something that you're having a hard time letting go of someone you hurt um, you know, a place in your life where you turned left and, and maybe going right would have been a better idea. 
And someone will come around and say, I don't regret anything in my past because it's made me who I am today. And I'm like, if you don't shut the fuck up and get away from me, I, I have, you know, I've, I've struggled with addiction for a long time. And when struggling with addiction, it means that I've hurt a lot of people who truly love me with, you know, lies or stealing or manipulating or, 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 or. Um, I've let a lot of people down. And I think that anyone my age or older that doesn't have a single regret is probably a fucking narcissist. Like, either that or they've taken zero risks their entire life. They've just, you know, stayed on the path, kept their head down, kept their nose clean, and, you know, did what was expected of them. Which, you know, if that worked for them, that's great, you know. And, you know, if if that worked for them, that's great, you know. Um, however, in, in my life, I took a lot of risks. Um, I took a lot of chances. I went on adventures. And sometimes people got hurt. Sometimes it was me. More times than not, it was other people. And with the hurt that I've caused, I don't support the idea that I'm allowed to have joy or be successful. Um, I still have a lot of survivor's guilt for members of my family that... um, suffered with AIDS, with HIV, died from AIDS. And I lived, you know, friends, family. Um, I still really beat myself up over my mother's uh, suicide. And I haven't been able to get past it for the longest time. You know... My mother, um, I was, what, 33? And I was working in Philadelphia at this really amazing restaurant. And I was making really great money. And I had left New York City and went to my mother's house. I stayed with my mom. When my relationship ended with my son's mother, um, I, I left and I was working in New York City. And then I decided... I'm out. I, I can't I can't do this. And I went to uh stay with my mom in Jersey. And my mom was pretty sick. And I remember a doctor saying that, you know, she's got a couple of weeks. Now mind you, my mother lived like another three or four fucking years. But um yeah, she lived another three years because that was just before uh the turn of the millennia. Right? It was nineteen ninety-nine, and I left New York City and I go to stay with my mom. And, um, you know, after a while, I ended up, you know, moving out, getting my own place out there. And I met uh, a young lady and we, we had a child, we had a daughter. And, um, you know, this random time, right, that my mom's like, 
the, the relationship ended, but my daughter's birth, I can, I can honestly tell you, my daughter's birth is what kept my mother alive for another three years. When my daughter was born, my mother just got better. I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't explain it any other way. She just got better. And it truly, truly gave my mother hope and spirit and joy. And eventually, um, my daughter's mom and I split up and I got my own place. And I got this job uh, in Philly. I wasn't very far from Philly where I was staying in, in uh, Southwest Jersey. But um, one day, my mother calls and says, John, I, I need you to come to the house. Now, I, knowing that my mother technically should have passed years ago, I go running up there because, you know, she might be on her last leg. You know, she had a, I remember she had a fentanyl, um, fentanyl patch and she had an IV that she had to walk around her house with, um, with antibiotics. She had osteomyelitis. And now that osteomyelitis is curable, However, in the early 2000s, it wasn't. And there was no antibiotic that was strong enough to kill the bone marrow infection that she was suffering from. But um, she was miserable. And I went to the house. I'm, now, I ran. I'm in a tuxedo. I had to wear a tuxedo for my job. And I'm in this $600 tuxedo booking from my house to my mother's house. So I get to my mom's house and I'm out of breath. I'm a smoker. I'm asthmatic. What the fuck, you know? And I, I opened the door. My mother always kept the door unlocked. I, it was something that I still, I, I'm, I'm the same way. Um, I hate locks. But um, I think it had to do with my mother being in prison for so long. But I digress. So I open the door. I fly into to my mother's house. I run to her bedroom. She's sitting on the edge of the bed watching TV, smoking a cigarette. I say, Mom, what's, what's going on? What's going on? She said, nothing. What, I just wanted to talk to you. You okay? And I'm like, am I okay? Motherfucker, you know, like, you can't just be like, I need you to come here right now and not say what the fuck, you know, that was about. And so she kind of giggled at me and she's like, I wanted to give you this. My mother hands me like 600 bucks. I don't, I don't remember the exact amount. It was somewhere between five and $700. And she's like, I want you to have this. And I said, for what? I said, mom. I have a six-figure income at this restaurant I work at. You see this tux I'm in? Like, I should be giving you money. Do you need some money? She's like, no, John, I'm fine. Look, I was gone for so long. And she started to tear up. And she said, there were so many times that I felt horrible for not being able to buy you a wonderful gift for your high school graduation, you know, for the birth of one of your children. Um all your birthdays, all the holidays. She said, I just, hey, I want you to take this money. Don't fucking argue with me. Take this money. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, all right, all right, damn, you know. She said, John, I know you, and, and this is the truth, dog. To, to this day, this is so true about me. She said, don't buy anyone else anything with this money. I want you to go to the mall, to a store, and I want you to get yourself something really, really nice. And I kid you not, I at that time, I don't think I ever spent um, an elaborate amount of money on myself, you know. 
um, with the exception of when I was using drugs, then, you know, all the money went to elaborate amounts of drugs. However, when I am clean and sober and, and in a more spiritually centered place, I don't, I live by my needs, you know, and I didn't need anything. So I'm like, well, you know, you know, my girlfriend's always said that she wanted this thing. Let me go get that for her. Or, you know, my son said he wanted this toy. Let me go get that, you know. And so my mother was like, don't buy any motherfucker any fucking thing. This is for you and you alone. And I said, okay, you know, all right, fair enough. And uh, she said, give me a hug. And I gave her a hug. She goes, you know, I love you. And I said, mom, I love you too. Like, what, what the fuck? Like, what, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm totally fine. I just, you know, I, I, I know I can't make up for lost time. Um, but I just need you to know how much I truly, truly love you. And please get yourself something nice. And I said, you know, all right, all right. And I was kind of still reluctant, you know, and I thought about just taking the money and shoving it in her purse. But my mother, man, like maybe it's childhood trauma that, that triggers it, but I do not want to piss my mama off. Um, side note, let me tell you, let me give you an example. I was in my thirties. This is after I moved to Jersey to be closer to my mom. My mother calls me one day. She said, put on Jenny Jones. And I said, okay, you know, what's, what's going on? She said, just put on the goddamn show. I said, all right, all right. I put on the show. And it's Jenny Jones and it's Jenny. Help me with my wild teen. And there's this boy on there that told his mother, shut the fuck up, bitch. And, mom, and I was like, mom, why did you tell me to put this on? She said, you see that little motherfucker? I wish that motherfucker would say something like that to me. And I'm, I'm dying, right? I'm laughing. I'm in tears. And I'm like, I know, mom, I, I would never. She said, you damn right. She said, even with my walker right now, you ever said some shit like that to me? I slapped the shit out of you. And I'm like, mom, why are you getting mad at me? She said, I don't know. That little motherfucker just got me mad at all my kids. I'm ready to curse all y'all out. And I said, I didn't do nothing, you know. <laughs> and I said, you know, maybe he's got, you know, some sort of disorder or something that they need to help navigate, you know. And she was like, he ain't got nothing but AWDS. And I said, what the hell is that? She said, ass whooping deficiency syndrome. Give that little motherfucker to me for one week. I'll straighten him out. And <laughs> I was like, mom. And I could, I could laugh about it, you know, in... In hindsight, you know, because that's just my mother, you know, that's the way she was, the way she was always going to be, you know, today, you know, I don't agree with that at all, but my mom was not playing. She was mad at somebody else's child disrespecting their parent and was as mad as if I had said that shit to her, you know, um, so for my mother to be like, you know, I just, I just want you to know I love you. And I've always loved you. And I'm so sorry I wasn't there. That was completely out of character for my mother. Like I raised an eyebrow and tilted my head and was like, mom, are you getting enough fentanyl? Like what, what is this? Are you getting too much fentanyl? Like what, what's, what's going on right now? And um, she's like, mom, just shut up. Just take the money and, and get ahead about your day. And I, All right, you know, and I left, but I was not going to leave that money there and piss her off. I'll tell you that. So I, um, I called out of work. I was going to go to work and I called out of work and I went to the mall like, fuck it. Yeah, let's just make a day of it. And I got myself a nice little meal. And um, I remember I went past a jewelry store 
And my birthstone is a diamond. And I've never owned diamonds ever. Never owned it. Never owned gold. Uh, never flaunted a bunch of jewelry. Um, every once in a while, I, I liked, I always liked silver necklaces. I don't know why. I just felt like gold drew too much attention. And it was, I just didn't like the message that it sent, you know? Um, I always feel like whenever somebody has gold, it bothers me. I remember a poem by Black Ice where he talks about having a Range Rover outside, you know, worth $40,000 and you're in your mother's, you know, duplex, you know, in the projects or whatever. And the car you got outside is worth more than your mama's house and you live in in your mama's house in the basement or in the attic but you got a fucking range rover outside because you you you're focused on you know showing out showing off so i i didn't really get too deep into materialism there was a time in my life where i was vain and i worked out a lot and always wanted to look nice but jewelry was just never my thing but i i went in and i was like i'm going to get something with a diamond in it and I got myself a pair of diamond earrings. And it felt good. Like, it, I think it was the most loving, one of the most loving moments that I've ever had alone by myself, you know, for me. And I got these earrings and I, as soon as I left the store, I put them on. And they felt good, you know. It felt like to treat myself, which was a rarity, to treat myself it felt like I was breaking some rule or some law. And I, it was like, it was almost a rebellious act to show love towards myself, right? So I am at the bus stop and I get a call. And back then the flip phones had just came out. I had a AT&T flip phone and child them roaming charges were whooping my ass. AT&T bills back then had hands, you hear me? Um, the phone was costing me somewhere around 100 a month, but the bill, man, the roaming charge, that shit would get up to $175, $200, you know? And back then, you used to be like, look, don't call me before 9 p.m., you know? <laughs> Everybody was having these full-ass conversations at 9.05, you know? Um, but I get this call. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up. And it's my mother's neighbor. And she says, John, you need to get down here to the hospital. And so I race over to the hospital. And my mother was in a coma. I just left the woman's house. And I, it, it, it took me at least an hour or two to wrap my head around the fact that I was just talking to her a little while ago. I mean, only a couple of hours had passed. How? Do, what do you mean she's in a coma? She uh, evidently overdosed on her insulin. This was decisive. And I said, what? Wait, what? No, we just talked this morning. She was fine. And then I remembered the conversation. And the fact that my mother didn't have a lot of money, um, but this was all sick for my mother to hand me $600. This was the same woman 
who, you know, when I was growing up, I was like, Mom, I got to get these sneakers. She said, how much are them sneakers? I said, they're only $55. She said, $55? Boy, you better get you better get a paper route or some shit. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You better start dealing drugs. I am not paying $55 for a pair of sneakers for you to fuck them up in two months. No. <laughs> you know, it was it was the time of the Adidas, the shell toe, you know, the fat laces. Um, I mean, I wanted to get a name belt. She said, I'll tell you what, I'll get you a belt and you can take outliner and write your name. <laughs> so for my mother to hand me $600, I knew it was completely out of character. For my mother to be so vulnerable and intimate with me the way she was that day was out of character. And I, I had my mother still so high on a pedestal I never thought my mother would do something like take her life. My mother was a don't, never say die, don't quit, don't ever quit. I don't give a fuck what you're going through. You put one foot in front of the other, you get through it. And so for my mother to take her life, that just shook the entire foundation of everything I knew about living. You know what I'm saying? And so I sat next to my mother and I brushed her hair for about three, maybe uh, maybe two, three days, I think. I didn't sleep much. Um, but some, some, at some point, I fell asleep right there, you know, on her bed, like I fell asleep right next to her uh, chest, you know, on the mattress. And um, at some point, I think my sister woke me up to let me know that she was going, she was passing. And I watched the heart monitor just slow and slow and slow. And then she was gone. And I'll never forget the silence when the medical personnel turned off the heart monitor and then they left the room. It was so loud. The, the quiet was just nerve-wrackingly loud, you know? And I never imagined this day would come. I never thought that I would bury my mother. I, I don't know. I, I never thought that my mother was going to die. Like my, this woman, the doctor said, I can't tell you how many times, right? These doctors were like, look, any day in, within the next week, you know, my mother lived, they, they predicted her to die within three months after she got home from prison. That was in, I would say, 19... 96, 95, somewhere around there. And the doctors were like, hey, you know, I give it a couple months tops. This motherfucker lived till 2003. You know what I'm saying? Like, she ain't never gonna die, you know? Um, and, and I would say to my mom, you know, like these doctors all had you signed off like, like so long ago. And my mother would say, you know, well, there ain't no rest for the wicked, you know? God wants me alive to punish me some more for all the shit I've done. 
And, uh, you know, and I remember like my mother's humor was so dark and, you know, there was an ounce of truth in every pound of jokes with her. And I would say, you know, I'm like, mom, we've never talked about what you want for your, your funeral, your wake. You know, we have to talk about this stuff. She said, John, I'll be dead. I'm not going to know what the fuck you did anyway. Put me in a refrigerator box and leave me against the fence for all I care. And I was like, mom, you know, and she would go, what? I don't give a fuck. Save your money. I, none of the limos and the whole tombstone and the, look, just fucking cremate me and do something with it. Like, I, it doesn't matter. I, who cares? I'm be dead already. It doesn't matter to me. And that's that's been my mother my whole life. Keep it simple, you know. Um, brass tacks and hard facts. That was my mother all the time, you know. And uh, so she's a she's she's laying there, and um, I don't know why, but in my head, you know, the white sheets and that little white blanket that they have. And my mother was a big woman, you know, most of her life. I'm talking, you know, somewhere between three and 400 pounds most of her life. And at this point, she was, she was below 300 for the first time in a long fucking time. My mother was below 300 pounds. But still, you know, with the white sheets over her and I just thought of a snow drift. You know, a, a new snow, you know how when it like, you ever, you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen a blizzard, you know, it depends on where you live, but if you've ever experienced a blizzard and you go outside just after the snow finishes, and maybe there's a couple of really big flakes still coming down and you watch them like almost explode when they hit the snow, you know, and the wind will carry the snow up against the tree and it was it's just so quiet and the snow absorbs all sound. So there, it's like being in a, in a recording studio, you know? And I imagined the snow drift when the white sheets were over her belly and her chest. And then I kept brushing her hair because I didn't know what else to do. I knew that after my mother died, I knew intuitively, instinctively, somewhere in the back of my mind, the recesses of my brain, I knew I would probably be alone the rest of my life. Um, there was always a little, a, a little, um, I don't know what to, a wedge between me and anyone I had ever dated. A little bit of a wall, you know, where I just knew eventually this wasn't going to work, you know. And I felt like when my mother died, my life ended as well. Life as I knew it ended. This was the, the oak tree that could never be taken down that had fallen. You know, she was a redwood. You know, she was just her personality, her, her voice. She was enormous. You know, she was just people saw her and were in awe, you know. And she was gone. She was gone. And and I'll never forget the, the, the absolute resentment that I had with life on life's terms. And even with God. Like, I just got her back. My mother spent uh, about somewhere between 10 and 12 years in prison. She went when I was a teenager. 
And here she was back home and I'm in my, you know, mid to late 20s. And then by the time I'm 33, she's gone. And at that point, I was like, what kind of a fucking world does that to someone and then expects them to participate in this whole living thing? And I, I remember I relapsed. I don't know if it was that day or the day after. And I started using again. And at that time, I was clean about three years. And uh, I just gave up. And I'm having a lot of those feelings now of just wanting to give up. Like, I'm sure that this is my depression and I'm, I'm trying to work through. I've had suicidal tendencies all day. All day. You know, I just... I didn't make a whole bunch of videos today for TikTok. I didn't do anything on Instagram today. I didn't, I just was like, I after seeing uh, Katanji Brown Jackson being just absolutely abused by the Republican Party, I don't know what it was, but something in my head clicked like, yo, fuck this world. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. Like, I just don't, you know? And I think about, you know, Ukraine, and everybody's like, oh, God, let's take some refugees in. And I'm like, what the fuck? What happened with Syria and Afghanistan, all these other people that needed places to come? What about the Haitians who are, like, struggling with absolute poverty? And and now, all of a sudden, we, we got room, you know? And the hypocrisy and the corruption and, and the deceit and the self-centeredness and the materialism, and I'm just fucking done like I just feel like I want my mom you know I feel like I, I I just every time that I've gotten into uh, a monogamous relationship I wanted it to last forever but intuitively I knew most likely it wouldn't because I have a bad picker. You know what I mean? I, you know, seeing my mom so disappointed in men my whole life, I looked for cynical, you know, narcissistic women to try and make things better for them so that somewhere in my brain, it would, it would balance the universe for my mom's life. You know, I thought it would make things right to, find a discouraged, you know, cynical woman and make a beautiful life for her more than with her. And at some point, you know, my mother could just look at me and just be proud, you know? And it never worked. <laughs> this just in, shocker, guess what? It didn't work. But um, I... I've had this apartment for almost two years now. And y'all, I, I don't want to live alone. I thought I could. Maybe I still can, but um, my spirit is just in this really awful place. And this apartment is in shambles. I haven't had running water in my shower or my kitchen sink for almost seven weeks now. 
and they're, they swear they're going to fix it on Monday, whatever. They've been saying this for a while. I'm months behind in rent, struggling with this podcast and the Patreon and TikTok. And I thought that it was going to take off a lot more than it did. And it hasn't. Um, I got a PPP loan, I think, for some of the rent. Um, but I got to find work like really soon. Um, my landlord's been hella patient, probably because he knows that this apartment is fuck shit and he probably wouldn't get any rent anyway. He hasn't so much threatened with eviction, but, um, I just feel so lost. I, I don't know. The thought of getting in another relationship feels exhausting. And the thought of living alone feels equally tiresome. I have so many regrets that I don't know if I can move forward. I'm actually considering uh, signing myself into uh, the hospital to kind of just get centered again or, or find my center or go towards it somehow. And can I tell you, this is so silly, right? Because I'm a grown-ass man. Well, I'm a grown-ass person, 51. And I'm afraid to leave TikTok for a whole fucking week or more because, like, I was losing 100 followers a day every time I didn't make a video. <laughs> I was like, if I go, I'm going to lose, like, over 1,000 people in a week and who knows how many more, And you know, um... Growing up, you know, my mom working and going to school and all the time and my dad never being there, my siblings always running the street, buck wilding. I spent a lot of time as a child and I'm talking five, six, seven, eight by myself. And I remember just wishing somebody would just come home. And now since this divorce, nobody is walking through my door. And I am struggling with this. I am struggling with, and I think the pandemic did a lot of the damage because, you know, I haven't been out making friends, but I don't know. I just, I have to find my vigor for life again. I have to, I had it. Like when I first got home from rehab, I had it. And I've been struggling with recovery so much because I'm, I just, I've always wanted to connect with other people more than I've wanted to connect with myself. And if there's no one around me, you know, impressed when I get home that I've achieved something or waiting to hug me or eat with me, I just feel like, what's the point? And I've got to, I've got to make myself the point. And I honestly don't know how. I don't know how to make myself important enough to live solely for me. I was always trying to make my mom feel better and always trying to get my dad to come home and you know, 
always tried when I was younger and I got clean at 16. I was always trying to get my siblings clean. I never wanted to go through this alone. And that's probably why I've been a serial monogamist my entire life. I have never been. This is the longest I have ever been single in my life. I've been single for about a year. Maybe a little more than that. And with the exception of a couple of times getting with somebody, but nothing really panned out for it, panned out with it. Um, this is the longest I've ever been by myself. I have never spent more than two months, maybe, single my entire life since I started dating somewhere around 13. I, I just feel like a little kid again, you know, curled up in the corner of a couch waiting for somebody to come home. And I think it's that abandonment, that, that childhood trauma that I'm, I'm reliving every day that I'm here by myself. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm refusing to read any of these books. I'm refusing to read them because it may distract me from wanting someone to come home to me. You know, it, it's almost like a kid that, that gets tricked into going to sleep. You know, no, I'm not. I don't want you to sing to me. No, I don't want to read a book. You know, I just want to stay awake and I'm not going to let you trick me into going to sleep. And I feel like I don't want to be happy by myself. Like that's, there's something so, I don't know. It, it just feels wrong. It feels wrong. It feels like we're all supposed to be with other people, you know? And I think that's a, a big part of, you know, I'm, I'm an extrovert. It's always been about being around other people, you know, whether it was spoken word, um, whether, you know, it was breakdancing when I was a teenager. It was, it was always performing for the crowd. It was always wanting to hear the applause. It was wanting to be loved and appreciated anywhere I could find it. And I mean anywhere. I've put myself in some horrible sets of circumstances just for acknowledgement, just for attention, just to hear someone say, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. Now that never, you know, never came to fruition, but I, I don't know, y'all. Um, I'm really struggling. And um, financially, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to come out of this. <laughs> I don't. I've had some friends who have sent some money to help me out with, you know, keeping the Wi-Fi going, keeping my phone going. Um, I'm still behind, you know, double build on damn near everything. Um, and I haven't pushed myself to, to get out of it because I'm like, let it, let it all go. Just let it all, just let it all go. You know, um, yeah, I've got some stuff to, to work out and, um, I'm trying to, to love myself enough to share with you what I'm going through rather than what my mother did, you know, and I remember 
when I was at rehab, I remember the psychiatrist saying, you could never be off of an antidepressant. And I stopped taking them for a little while because it was affecting my writing, or so I thought. I started taking my, my antidepressant again a, a couple of days ago, about three, four days ago. And it's going to take some time for it to, to you know, get in there. But, I, you know, I got no money for like, I don't even have the money to take an Uber to go to the fucking pharmacy to refill the prescription. Like, I'm just, whew, excuse me. And, and this is nobody's fault but my own, you know. I've allowed this all to just fall apart. And that happens to me from time to time. But this is like really bad. And I need to find a reason to want to live a good life. But without family, I don't see the point. Like, who wants to go through another fucking Christmas like this? Who the hell? Like, why would I even want to have a birthday? I have no, I have zero friends coming to my house for my birthday. You know what I mean? Like, and it's fucking 52. Like, ugh. Like, that's just the most grossest number on earth. Like, 52. It just means that, like, my scrotum is is sporting all gray pubic hairs and, like, my muscle mass is gone. My pecs have turned into breasts. It, it's it's just ugly. Like, it's all ugly. Like, who the fuck wants to fuck somebody like that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just being real, you know? Like, 52 is physically ugly, you know? We, we could hold up in some pictures, you know? We could dress it up nice for TikTok. But you take off the clothes at 52 and this shit is falling apart, you know? It is it is at that point just before they swing the fucking wrecking ball at the abandoned building. Like that's where it is. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I lost I, I lost my gallbladder uh just about a month and a half, two months ago. And um now whenever there's a rumble in my digestive system, I don't know if I'm gonna pass gas or shit, and it's scary. Like when I need to go to the bathroom, I got about 11 seconds to get there. And that is pathetic. And I'm at a place where, like, if I have to start wearing diapers, I'm done. Like, I'm like, fuck this. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, it's, it's, uh. And, and this is what some friends of mine would call high class problems or first world problems. And that gives me a little perspective. I'm angry that I'm still here. I'm angry that my dad died. I'm angry that my mother died. I'm angry that Benny, my oldest brother, died. Like, this life hasn't gone very much at all the way I wanted it to go. I was 14 and good looking <laughs> and I laughed and I made my friends laugh and girls had crushes on me and you know I had just started being sexually active at 14 and life was amazing and the prince was here and fucking you know man the thriller album and you know what I mean like your life was the shit you know rock him and fucking LL Cool J and 
like everything was just full of sound and breakdancing and excitement and I could feel this buzz in the air and it was like man this life is gonna be fucking amazing yeah and that that didn't that didn't pan out um but I've I've done what I can and I know I have made life great for a lot of other people. I know that. A lot of people. I can't tell you how many voice messages I get here just on my podcast alone about how someone believes that I was very instrumental in changing the path for their life and it has improved greatly and they're just so thankful that they found me. And I get those kind of messages on TikTok and Snapchat and and it's not registering, y'all. It's not registering because I don't know how to be there for myself. I've never known how to be there for myself. What I've done for myself is added people to my life to because I found joy in doing loving acts for other people, you know? And, you know, people, you, oh, the thing about, you know, you're too nice and all of that. I There's just something about giving to other people and and um, showering other people with love and loving acts and compassion and kindness and forgiveness and listen there's something about that man that I just oh you know <laughs> I just I, I fucking love it I love to see someone's expression and and their 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 body posture and everything change when you do something great for them you know I think that's why Christmas has always been my favorite time of year up until recently. Because I, man, when I could afford it, I would, I loved going and getting those elaborate gifts from people that I wasn't even all that close to, but I knew that no one else was going to get it for them. So I had to get this gift for them. And I'll never forget seeing those looks when people think like, oh my God, I can't believe, oh, you know, and, ah. Uh, it's the best. It's the best. It's the best feeling in the world. It's the best. And I got to find that for me. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know where it is. But I got to find it. That's for sure. I don't know, y'all. I'm signing off, but... As you hear me struggle, understand that this is why I tell all of you, remember to love yourself. And if you fall short, you can start your day over at any time. And I hope you do your best. And so will I. Bye, y'all.